please turn with me this morning to the uh, book of Zechariah. Book of Zechariah, chapter 1. We are going to continue in our study of the minor prophets. And this morning we're going to be looking specifically at the first six verses. So Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers, so that they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Thus the reading of God's holy word, and may he add his blessing to it. So we come to the book of Zechariah, which is the second to last book of the Old Testament, as it is arranged, uh, in, or as they appear in canonical order, though this is not necessarily the next to last book in chronological order. We have a couple more books to go. We're going to deal with Malachi and also the book of Joel. Uh, but Zechariah comes very near the end of the Old Testament period, and he, in fact, prophesies at about the same time that Haggai prophesies, and that's the prophet, of course, that we dealt with last week. But the book of Zechariah is a very difficult book in a number of ways. Uh, one Jewish commentator has said, few other books of the Bible present so many problems of interpretation as this does. Medieval Jewish commentators, he says, led by Rashi and Ibn Ezra, confess that the prophecies of Zechariah are most obscure and difficult of exposition. The conflicting interpreters of modern scholars only accentuate the difficulty. A part of the difficulty for Jewish commentators is the fact that there are several prophecies of the Messiah in the book that seem to the reader who is acquainted with what's recorded of Jesus in the New Testament seem very clearly to be pointing to Jesus of Nazareth. And so this presents a problem for Jewish interpreters because, of course, they don't acknowledge Jesus to be the Messiah. In fact, the same commentator I just quoted says, The Messiah, spoken of by Zechariah, the Messiah will make a triumphant entry into Jerusalem, and in his day the new Jerusalem will arise as the capital of the kingdom of God on earth, to which the nations of the world will flow and join themselves to the God of Israel and to his people. Now, this is very interesting because whether he knows it or not, he's using language that Christians use with respect to Jesus and the church. For example, he speaks of the Messiah making a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And, of course, that's what we celebrate when we observe Palm Sunday. We speak in this very language, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. He also speaks of a new Jerusalem, language which the New Testament in various places uses for the church. In Galatians chapter 3, for instance, Hebrews 12, and several places in the book of Revelation. Revelation. 
He speaks of the nations of the world flowing into the new Jerusalem and joining themselves to the God of Israel and to his people. And this is what so much of the New Testament is about as well, the incorporation of believing Gentiles into the people of Israel through Jesus Christ. And so here's a Jewish commentator who's looking at the book of Zechariah, speaking about these messianic prophecies, and yet somehow overlooking the fact that they are fulfilled in Jesus. So some of the difficulties of the book for Jewish interpreters arise from their failure to recognize Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. Other difficulties, however, are common to both Jewish and Christian commentators, and these arise in part from the difficult style of certain portions of the book of Zechariah. And if you're familiar with the book of Zechariah, you know, especially in some of the latter chapters, uh, there is a, a very difficult and obscure style in the book. It's a particular style that's known to a, a genre of biblical literature known as apocalyptic literature. Uh, the book of Revelation is a good example, probably the most well-known example of apocalyptic biblical literature. Apocalyptic literature deals with uh, or uses very vivid symbolism to get its truth uh, across, to get its points made. Uh, sometimes the, the images or the symbolism is very bizarre. In Revelation, for example, there's a dragon with seven heads and ten horns and various beasts that arise out of the sea and, and this kind of thing. And we find similar language in the book of Zechariah. And so, of course, these things are, are difficult for especially the modern interpreter to understand. One, because we're separated by culture from the ancient Jews and separated by time. And so some symbols that would be very obvious to the original readers of the book are much more difficult for us as 21st century Gentile Christians um, in America. Um, we find it more difficult. But at any rate, some of the difficulty in understanding Zechariah arises from the style of the book. Other difficulties arise from the paucity of information concerning the historical period that Zechariah prophesies about. There's just not a lot of information from that part or that period of, of history uh, to be able to piece together the significance of some of the prophecies. Now, having said all of this, I should also add that we shouldn't exaggerate the difficulties of understanding Zechariah. It's not like the book is a complete mystery. Far from it. The book in its broad outlines, um, and even in many of its details, is easy enough to understand. But there are some passages that we will get to about which we'll have to speak very tentatively. And I'll give you my opinion and let you know that it is my opinion. Okay. Now, as we mentioned last week when talking about the book of Haggai, uh, both he and Zechariah prophesied side by side, as it were, in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah after the return of the Jews from Babylonian captivity. So as you read through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that come after First and Second Chronicles, it's giving us a historical account, a reckoning of the Jews, the Jews who had been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, and they're talking about the return, and it gives us a long list of people who returned, the households and the families and so on. And it mentions the, the period of the rebuilding of the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians some 70 years earlier. And it talks about a number of other things that are going on in this period. Well, that's the period that both Haggai, that we talked about last week, Haggai and Zechariah were prophesying about. Um, and as you might remember from our discussion last week concerning Haggai, the Jews were allowed to return, made their return in 537 B.C. And though they had not yet gained their independence, uh, the Persians allowed them to return to the land and begin to rebuild the city 
and to rebuild the temple. When they first arrive, the Jews build an altar. Before there's a a fully constructed temple, they build an altar as the beginning point of offering again to God the sacrifices and the offerings that were commanded by the law. Shortly after this, they begin to lay the foundation of a new temple around the altar. And they're not too far into that work when they encounter all kinds of opposition from the Samaritans to the north and some other people who oppose the Jews returning to the land. And they send off letters to the reigning Persian monarch and uh, the new kings puts a stop to the work. And so for a period of about 10 years, from 530 to 520 B.C., work on the temple stops. And it's time that the people are somewhat discouraged about this, but they go on about their lives. And finally, God raises up two men, two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, as I mentioned. In fact, in the book of Ezra, a passage that we looked at briefly last week, Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, It says, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God, Haggai and Zechariah, were with them, supporting them. All right, so the king had issued the decree, stop work on the house of God, quit it. It shall not be rebuilt. Ten years pass. They do nothing on the house. God finally says, okay, you cowards, (laughs) I'll raise up prophets in your midst who will encourage you in the work. And that's what he does. He raises up Haggai and Zechariah. Haggai, uh, the word of the Lord came to him first. And again, from last week, first chapter of Haggai, briefly in the second year of Darius, the king, In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, which, by the way, that was August 29th, 520 B.C., which means that was 2,539 years ago this last Thursday. All right, it's interesting. He dates it very specifically. All right, the word of the Lord, it says, came uh, uh, to Haggai the prophet. And Haggai spoke to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, And to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Because of all of these obstacles, because of the decree of the king, the time has not yet come. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house, my house, the temple, lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. All right, they, they can't save the money. There's always some expense that they have to spend all their money on. <clears throat> so they're not prospering. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it that I may be glorified in it, says the Lord. All right, so he's stirring up Haggai to to say these words to the people. Go to the hills. The time is now. Quit saying the time is not now. The time is now. Go to the hills. Cut down trees. Get the wood. Bring it. Build the house. All right, so this is what's going on at the same time that the Lord is also stirring up the prophet Zechariah. In fact, it's about two months later after that word from Haggai. It's about two months later that the Lord also began to speak through Zechariah. 
But who was Zechariah? Well, we don't know a great deal about him, but in chapter 1 and verse 1, it is, it is said that he is the son of Berechiah and the grandson of Iddo. Now, of course, that immediately lets you know some important things if you know who Iddo is. Iddo is listed in the book of Nehemiah as one of the priests uh, who came back from Babylonian exile, returned from exile with Zerubbabel, who's the governor and also a descendant of David. In other words, he's in the line of kings. He's mentioned in the um, genealogy of Jesus uh, in Matthew and in Luke. All right, so he is a descendant of David, though he's not a king. He is appointed governor of the returned exiles. And Iddo is one of those who come, and he's a priest. And Zechariah is a descendant. So in addition to being a prophet, we learn that Zechariah is also a priest. So then Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, have just recently gotten to work organizing the rebuilding of the temple because of the word of the Lord through Haggai the prophet. And now the Lord calls Zechariah also to encourage them in this work. Now, the book can be divided into two main sections, uh, chapters 1 through 8 and then chapters 9 through 14. And these two sections are quite different from each other. In chapters 1 through 8, we find a series of visions in which angels play a very prominent role. One angel, in fact, will stand by Zechariah and he'll serve as uh, an interpreter or uh, an explainer of of the visions, explaining the meaning of the visions. The second section, chapters 9 through 14, is quite different from the first. Here we find no visions or angels, nor is there any dated prophecy. In other words, we don't know exactly when the visions came to him like we do in the first part of the book. Neither Zerubbabel nor Joshua are mentioned, the governor or the high priest. Neither is there any allusion made to the rebuilding of the temple. And perhaps this means that these latter chapters, chapters 9 through 14, were written after the work of rebuilding the temple was completed. They seem to presuppose a new set of challenges facing the people. And this is largely the section where this apocalyptic language is used, and we find a lot of difficulty in pinpointing exactly what the prophecies are referring to. The message in the first section, chapters 1 through 8, is a message of peace and comfort. Now, that stands in stark contrast to a lot of the minor prophets that we read of before the exile, doesn't it? The, the, prof, the minor prophets and the major prophets living before the exile were prophesying of the judgment to come through the Babylonian invasion and the captivity of the people. And there were warnings and there were admonitions to repent and turn or these terrible judgments of God would fall upon the people. Um, And there were promises of mercy and peace and comfort if the people should repent, but of course they did not. Now the judgment has taken place. The time, according to the prophets, has been fulfilled. The exiles have come back and God is encouraging them. This is a message, as I say, of peace and comfort for the people of Israel after the return. God is telling them, in fact, um, in quite vivid ways, uh, that, that the world is ruled not by chance, but by divine providence. He sends out horsemen who patrol the earth. He keeps certain forces of the enemies at bay, and he's allowing the people to return, to be strengthened, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple. He's encouraging them, don't be afraid to do what I've called you to do. I will, I will protect you. I'll be a wall of defense, and the work will succeed if you obey me. Now, the first prophecy that we just read was delivered in October or November of 520 B.C. 
between the second and third prophecies of Haggai. It's very brief. It's kind of an introductory um, vision or message to the book as a whole. And it calls the people to return to the Lord. Again, it says in the eighth month, that is the eighth month of the Jewish calendar, placing it October, early, late October, early November, in the second year of Darius, that is 520 B.C., the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. And by your fathers, he means, of course, the generations that lived just prior to and including the generation that experienced the destruction of Jerusalem and the uh, captivity into uh, Babylon. God here would have them to know, if they didn't already know it or if they had forgotten it, that the exile was not simply an unfortunate event in geopolitical history, but it came as a divine judgment which God himself sent upon them for their terrible sins, for the great iniquity, even as Moses had forewarned in Deuteronomy. In fact, there are a lot of parallels in certain portions of Zechariah to what Moses wrote in the book of Deuteronomy. Remember in Deuteronomy chapter 28, uh, beginning at what verses 36 and 37, well, the chapter as a whole, God is, uh, through Moses, he's telling the people that there are tremendous blessings to be had if you keep covenant with me. Here are the promises. Here are the blessings. If you will obey me and trust in me, you'll be blessed in the city. You'll be blessed in the field. Your flocks and your herds will increase. I'll send rain at the proper times. Your crops will flourish. Your enemies will come at you one way, but you'll rise up against them and your enemies will flee seven ways before you. I'll make you the head and not the tail. You'll be so wealthy, you will lend to many nations and you'll have no need to borrow. And all these blessings that God pronounces upon covenant faithfulness. Keep covenant with me. Be faithful. Trust in me. And then that's verses 1 through 14 of Deuteronomy 28. And then from verse 15 through the end of the chapter, which I think is like 68 verses. That's a lot. That's a lengthy section. God says, and here are the consequences for being unfaithful to the covenant. And he talks about sickness, talks about famine, talks about drought, talks about the enemies rising and being victorious over them. And then the, the capstone of it all is that not only would they be defeated by their enemies, but they would eventually, they would be taken into exile. So in Deuteronomy 28, verses 36 and 37, it says, The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And of course, at the time Moses is writing about this, Babylon was nothing. They were nobody. They, were, they weren't an actor on the world stage. I mean, they were a local kingdom. They certainly weren't a dominant power. And so the people of Israel knew nothing about Babylon. And that's what he's saying here. At the time will come when, when the, you and your king, whom you set over you, um, will go, I'm sorry, will, will go to a nation that neither your fathers, that you have not known, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, and you shall become a horror and a proverb and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. So this was the ultimate judgment, the judgment of all judgments, expulsion from the land. Even as the Lord expelled the wicked Canaanites from the land, so he expelled Israel when he committed the same, when they committed the same abominations. In the 18th chapter of uh, the book of Leviticus, after reciting a long list of sinful practices that he commanded the people to avoid, the Lord said this, 
He said, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, these things that God had just spoken of. For by all these, the nations that I'm driving out before you, the Canaanite nations, they have become unclean by them. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. What a powerful and vivid way of expressing the truth that the people, the Canaanites, had become so abominable in God's sight that he drove them out of the land and it was like the land itself was purging itself from uh, these wicked people and their practices. He says, The land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants, but you shall keep my commandments and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean. Do not do these things lest the land vomit you out. And when you make it unclean, when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation, nations that were before you. All right, so very, a very vivid and very powerful way of putting it. It's like the land itself became sick of witnessing all these terrible things. What kinds of things? Things like human sacrifice, child sacrifice, every form of sexual immorality that you wouldn't even want to think about, they committed all kinds of uh, forms of idolatry and wicked practices. And God says that if you descend to that level, you will be removed from the land, just like the nations who have it in this land before you were removed from it. And so that's what happened to, to Israel when they went into Babylonian captivity. It's like the land purged itself uh, of the people, of the Jews. <clears throat> but now they're allowed to come back. And the Lord is reminding them, says, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. And then in verse 3 in Zechariah, Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. All right, the people had returned from exile, but they had not yet returned to a wholehearted obedience to God, as was demonstrated by their indifference toward rebuilding the temple. Here, returning to the Lord seems to mean returning to the task that they had been neglecting for the past 10 years. If they would return to him by returning to the work, the Lord would return to them by blessing and prospering them. He says again in verse 4, Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. He says, Don't be like them. They heard the word, but they didn't receive it. They didn't act on it. They ignored my words, and they suffered the consequences. All right, and this is something that we find from the beginning of the Bible to the end. God speaks to us. He, he discloses himself to us, reveals himself, speaking about who he is and what he requires of us, and he expects us to take heed. But if we ignore him, then things don't go well, right? And God is just reminding them of things that, they, they knew from childhood, hear God's word, believe his word, obey his word, and he will smooth your way before you. All right, now in verse 5, he says, your fathers, where are they? These fathers that God was angry at. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets who spoke to them, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? 
So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Now notice here that the text assumes that the words of the earlier prophets are available and were being studied. Right here, Zechariah, the Lord speaking through Zechariah, is presupposing that the people who hear him know the words of the former prophets. Right, and that, that what the former prophets had said came to pass. They were fulfilled, which lets us know that that uh, they cherished the words of the prophets. They, they, at least the faithful remnant did. This idea of the faithful remnant we haven't talked about for several weeks, but we have emphasized it throughout, that even in times of greatest apostasy in Israel's history, God has always had his faithful remnant who have believed in him, who have held fast to him, who have cherished his word, have paid heed to it. Remember going all the way back to the days of Elijah, and Elijah is fleeing from the Lord, and he goes out into the desert, and he's exhausted, and he's fleeing from Jezebel, that wicked queen, and he says, Lord, just take my life. It's not worth it anymore. I'm tired. Nobody listens to me, and I'm the only one left who fears you. Have you ever felt that way? <laughs> but God says, no, I have reserved or preserved 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, that doesn't sound like very much compared to how what the population of Israel must have been at that time probably in the few hundreds of thousands, but God says there are 7,000 who have remained faithful, a remnant, a small number that have remained faithful. And God throughout the ages has had his remnant. There are those in the world who want nothing to do with God. They ignore God. They serve and worship other gods. There are those who at least nominally, that is in name, worship the one true God, but many of those who in name worship the one true God don't really follow God. There is that remnant within that larger number who take God seriously and who say, I don't want to be a Christian only in name, but I want to be a Christian in reality. I want to hear his word. I want to hide his word in my heart. I want to cherish his word. And here there's the supposition that this is taking place uh, in Judah at the time. And there are indications in several places throughout the Old Testament that the word of the Lord was preserved and it was cherished, that it was read and that it was studied. In the book of Jeremiah, for instance, we read that there were certain elders of the land who referred to the words of the prophet Micah, who lived a hundred years beforehand. The, what was going on in Jeremiah's day, and remember he lived before the exile, and all of his ministry he was telling the people of of Judah and Jerusalem, repent and return to the Lord because God is raising up the Babylonians and they're going to be sweeping through here. If we, if we return to the Lord, God will hold them back. But if we do not, the Babylonians will come and destroy this place. He will level the temple. And the many in Judah and Jerusalem said, that is blasphemy and that is traitorous language. You should be put to death. And they arrested him and they put him in a dungeon. But there were other elders who said, wait a minute, he's speaking in the name of the Lord. And do you remember, they said, do you remember that Micah, the prophet who lived a hundred years before, Micah said essentially the same thing. He said, Zion will be plowed like a field. That God will make this place like Shiloh. Shiloh was a place early in Israel's history where the sanctuary was kept. And the Philistines came and captured the Ark of the Covenant, destroyed the city of Shiloh. 
And now the prophet Micah is saying, or I'm sorry, Jeremiah is saying, God is going to make this place like Shiloh. And the reason he said that was because the Jews were saying, look, God's not going to do anything to Jerusalem. This is the place of his holy temple. In fact, they, he said, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We're safe. God will do nothing to defile this place. This is his holy place, his temple. Jeremiah says, remember what God did to Shiloh. That was the holy place. That's where the sanctuary was at first. But God allowed it to be overrun, and the Ark of the Covenant was even taken captive by the Philistines. But those in Jeremiah's day were saying, that's blasphemous, that's traitorous, he should be put to death, and they put him in the dungeon. But others said, no, Micah said the same thing. And what did King Hezekiah do? King Hezekiah didn't put Micah to death. King Hezekiah listened to what Micah said, and God spared us because we listened to the voice of the prophets. So again, my point is here that there were those who cherished the word of God, a remnant, an increasingly smaller and smaller remnant, it seems, who cherished the word of God, and they were spared. Daniel also was one who cherished the words of the prophets. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is actually in, still in exile. This is before the return. Daniel chapter 9, he says, In the first year of Darius, son of Ahasuerus, and by the way, this is the first year of Darius, Haggai and Zechariah were prophesying in the second year of Darius, I'm sorry, this is, a, this is a different Darius. Pardon me, just had a brain lapse. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, the, the, uh, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Jeremiah chapter 25, and I think also in chapter 27, the Lord spoke through Jeremiah saying, 70 years, you're going to go into exile, but then I will bring you back. Daniel is right on the eve of the return. He said, ah, Jeremiah said, 70 years, the time, he looks at his Apple watch and his calendar, and he says, the time has almost come, right? So again, the point is, they're paying heed to the words of the prophets, And that's what Zechariah is essentially saying. Your fathers have died. The prophets have died. They're gone. Where are they? They're no longer here. But my word abides. I said that this would happen, and I saw to it that it did happen. The word of the Lord that was spoken by the prophets has continued. They have been fulfilled. Matthew Henry says, The preachers died, the hearers died, but the word of God died not. That, the word of God, took effect and not one iota or tittle of it fell to the ground. You might remember the saying of Isaiah. I love this. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us never forget that. This is so important for us to remember. Political leaders will come and go. Empires will rise and fall. New philosophical movements will take the world by storm and then become passe, but the word of our God will stand forever. And there were those in, the faith, uh, in Israel, the faithful remnant, who held on to the word of God. They cherished it. They held it in their hearts. They read it. They studied it. They were prepared for the time of its fulfillment. And we need to, buy, uh, need to be like that as well. Stand by his word. The word of our God will stand forever. Now, why will the word of God stand forever? Because it is the word of God and not the word of men. 
right? Man's word often fails. How so? Men often lie. But as Scripture says, God is not a man that he should lie. Again, the glory of Israel will not lie. And indeed, as the writer of Hebrews says, it is impossible for God to lie. It is contrary to his nature, to his character. He is called the God of truth. What he says is true, and what he says he will do, he will do. Man's word often fails, again, because men often lie. And they also often change their minds. They often renege on what they say in good faith at the time. In other words, they often go back on what they say, even though they meant what they said at the time that they said it. Right? They have a change of heart. They change their mind, and they don't fulfill the commitments that they made early on, even though when they made the commitment at that time, they meant it. But man is fickle. Right? Man easily is swayed to one opinion and then to another, to one course of action and then another. New circumstances perhaps have entered their, cal- their calculations, things they hadn't thought of before. Or maybe they knew these things all along, but they had a change of heart and they just didn't feel like following through. Right? These, are, these are things common to human beings. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Numbers twenty three nineteen. God has already taken everything into consideration. When he speaks, he speaks from a position of infinite wisdom and infinite knowledge. There's no possibility of him ever obtaining any new information. He knows all things, all things past, all things present, and all things future. He knows all things actual as well as all things possible. He even knows what things would have been the case if circumstances had been different. Do you remember when Jesus says, Woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to you, Chorazin, for if the miracles that were done in you were done in Sodom, in Gomorrah, they would have repented? He's saying if the circumstances were different in ancient history, there would have been a different outcome. He knows even what would have been had circumstances been different. There is no new knowledge that God could ever come by. He knows all things, past, present, and future, actual, and possible. When he speaks, therefore, he speaks with infinite knowledge and infinite wisdom. There is no new knowledge that could possibly, he could possibly come by that would lead him to change his mind, nor anything that could possibly induce him to change his character. In the book of James, it says, With him there is no variation or shadow due to change. He is ever and always gloriously the same. Now, we might think that always being the same is boring. Variety is the spice of life, as the saying goes. But yet, when we're dealing with God, who has made promises to us, it is a real comfort to know that he does not change. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. He is ever and always gloriously the same. I, the Lord, do not change, he says in Malachi. And how could he if he is perfect in all of his ways? His word then is true and reliable. He cannot be, he cannot lie, nor can he be mistaken. Again, from Numbers 23, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? 
So all of this is implied in these verses of Zechariah. My words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? That is, these judgments that I said would come. Did they not come? He says, so they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways, indeed, so he has dealt with us. Now, this was very bad news for their fathers, for those who experienced the judgment, but it was very good news for the returned exiles who had a mind to hear and believe and to obey God's word. It was good for them, good news for them, for the Lord purposed to do them good, to bless them and to keep them and to make his face to shine upon them and to give them peace. And as he purposed, so he would do. That great promise in the book of the prophet Isaiah is apropos here. If they were willing and obedient, they would eat the good of the land. In other words, he would cause them to prosper in all their ways. He would cause them to live in peace and safety. And this is what the book, early chapters of the book are saying. I will hold your enemies at bay. I have my angelic forces that are going out to patrol the earth and all is quiet. So work in safety, work in confidence and believe that the temple will be rebuilt. The city will be restored. It was very good news for them that God's word will always prove true. And it's very good news for us, too, that the Lord will deal with us as he has purposed. Very good news that he does not change. He does not go back on his word. He has given us his oath and covenant sealed in the blood of his son, that he will have mercy on us and forgive us and that he will be with us forever. He will not go back on his word. He has not lied to us. He will never change his mind. He will never say, I just don't feel like doing what I said I would do. I'm too tired. Or something new has entered my mind that changes my calculations a bit. No, he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. He who is at work in a, he's at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What he began at first, he will complete at last. He has promised us forgiveness, justification, cleansing, sanctification. He has promised to progressively conform us to the image of his dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. He has promised us fellowship with him and with his sacrifice, as is even indicated by the Lord's Supper, table fellowship with our Lord and our Master. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who is a God of truth, a God who will not, cannot lie, for it's contrary to your nature and to your character. We thank you, our Father, that when you speak, we can know for a certainty that it is true and that you will fulfill all of your purposes. What you have said, you will do. And we thank you that you have made promises to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, that you have sealed those promises, that oath, that covenant with the blood of our Savior, Jesus. And we pray, our Father, that as we partake this morning of the Lord's Supper, that you would help us to appreciate more fully, perhaps, than ever we have before, just how firm your promise is to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to do things a bit differently today because our long one, we're going to sing three verses.